0: Let's pray together. Gracious God, we desire to become, by your adoption, more humanly, more than humanly possible, children of Abraham and Sarah of Isaac and Rebekah, of Jacob and Rachel. Above all, Abba, we desire to live as your sons and daughters by faith in your eternal Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Abba, Father, we come before you with even less to say for ourselves and even less in our hands than that Israelite farmer. We come to you as complete foreigners, strangers and vagabonds, But miraculously and boldly, we also come to you as members of the body of Jesus, your son. Lead us wanderers home, together in your spirit, into the land of your promises in Jesus. In his name. Amen. My father was a wandering Aramean. This morning, I want to call our attention to the astonishing importance of this weird text. From Deuteronomy, which God places on the lips of every Israelite who enters into the land of God's promises. My father, my ancestor, was just a wandering Aramean. This confession is one of the central moments in the whole faith of the Old Testament. My heart leapt when I saw that it was one of the recommended readings for today. I know I probably say things like, this is the most important text in the Bible, about every text of the Bible. And in a sense, it's true for every text in its turn. Scripture is a system which can and and should be viewed as a whole centered on each of its parts in turn. Still, in a stricter sense, Deuteronomy places the Declaration that my father was just an immigrant at the heart of God's covenant with Israel. And even more, at the heart of the new covenant in Jesus with Israel and the church of all the nations. Today, it hits us with peculiar relevance on so many levels that God commands the individual Israelite ritually to reaffirm Gesundheit. With every new harvest, My ancestor was just a fugitive migrant. In the eyes of the world, no more than just another displaced person, physically astray, even spiritually destitute. By the way, an Aramean is someone associated with Aram, a broad and rather undefined area in what we would call Northern Syria and Iraq. It's one of those areas of the world for which people and influences goods and armies travel. It's not a prestige place to be from. Its language, Aramaic, was for centuries used throughout the ancient Near East as a convenient international language for business and administration. In the gospels, when Jesus is quoted, he's speaking Aramaic. The rabbis used Aramaic when they didn't want to use the sacred language, Hebrew. Its Christian form, Syriac, has been the liturgical language of churches from the Middle East to China and India. Aramaean and wandering kind of go together. But back to our text. Deuteronomy 26.5 is amazing in at least three ways. First, there are many places in Deuteronomy and elsewhere in the Bible where God calls to Israel to say, listen, Israel, hear me, O Israel. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, and I have something to say to you. And listening in the Bible entails the response of obedience. But I can't think of any place other than in Deuteronomy 26 where the ordinary Israelite landowner is commanded to address God liturgically in a certain form of words, where Israel is commanded to talk to God and say directly to God, Lord, this is humanly who I am from. This is all I can inherit apart from what you give me. Second, there are lots of places in the Bible. I think, for example, of of Psalms 78 and 135, where Israel is reminded that their ancestors went down to Egypt as a few economic refugees and became there an oppressed and enslaved, but numerous ethnic minority until God heard their cries and brought them to Sinai to receive the Torah and then to Jordan to receive the promised country. Every year at Passover, Israel are commanded to commemorate and reenact this journey from Egypt through Sinai to Canaan. In most of the Bible, Israel is reminded to focus its self-identity centrally on that Egypt, Sinai, Canaan story arc. But here in Deuteronomy 26.5, the individual Israelite is commanded to go back one more uncomfortable step and confess before God, apart from your calling and your gift of God, my ancestor was a stray nomad, wandering in off the Northern desert. The Israelite is commanded to pronounce over his own origins what amounts to an ethnic and racial slur. If Deuteronomy twenty-six doesn't make us uncomfortable, then we aren't getting it. In fact, maybe I should warn you here that I don't think it will be possible for us to reflect on saying my father was a wanderer without addressing some uncomfortable topics before we win through to God's grace and the gift of his son in the Holy Spirit. So please bear with me if I say some uncomfortable things. But a third amazing thing about this text is how personal the confession is. Every year before eating any of the produce of his farm in Israel, the individual Israelite farmer must bring a basket of the first fruits to God and personally say these uncomfortable words. Unless and until the individual Israelite makes this confession, The Israelite farmer and his family are not allowed to eat from God's promised land. Even dwelling in the land of God's promises, the Israelite individual cannot appropriate those promises without first looking God in the eye and say, I know that none of this is mine, that all of this is your gift. In Deuteronomy 26, 5 to 11, then, the individual Israelite landowner is commanded to make a uniquely fundamental and personal acknowledgement before God. You shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, land flowing with milk and honey, and behold, Now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground ground which you, O Lord, have given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is with you. I don't know any other place in scripture where God says to an individual Israelite so clearly, when you come into my presence, before you even worship me, before you enjoy the fruits of the land I am giving you, I expect you to own up explicitly to the namelessness and the desert and the exile and the slavery out of which I have called you to enter at last into my promises and my gifts. It's a moment of joyful, but also sober self-knowledge, candor and intimacy between the individual Israelites when Israel is commanded to respond to God in words. The memory of the wandering Aramean makes this one of the most poignant of the many places where the Torah reminds the Israelite that the difference between Israel and the landless sojourner living next door is not a difference of entitlement. I said just now that this confession should make us uncomfortable at least before it comforts us. Rabbinic tradition through the centuries has had the honesty both to recognize that these words are central to the covenant and also to be uncomfortable with some of their implications. The importance of the confession, my father was a wandering Aramean, is stressed every year at Passover as the head of the family is required to expound the whole section, beginning with Deuteronomy 26.3, as Mishnah says, beginning with disgrace and ending with glory. Beginning with the disgrace of having to admit that my father was a wandering foreigner and ending with the glory of presenting to God the first fruits of the promised land. The discomfort is noticeable in the fact that through the centuries the rabbis have disagreed about who the father is in my father was a wandering Aramean, or what the wandering meant, even who's the Aramean. The most obvious father is Jacob, who God renamed Israel. Who else should an Israelite name as his ancestor? According to Genesis, Jacob spent much of his life in Aram, where Jacob served his uncle Laban for twice seven years for Leah and then for Rachel. And Jacob and his family wandered down to Egypt to escape from famine. Their fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. But many of the rabbis and the most us- usual Passover liturgy are, it seems, not comfortable with father Jacob going astray like some lost sheep. Instead, they read, my father was a wandering Aramean, as an Aramean injured my father. It only needs a few vowels to be changed to turn, my father was a wandering Aramean, Arami oved avi, into An Aramean injured my father, tried to make my father wander. Arami ibed avi. On this reading, Jacob, the ancestor of Israel, did, of course, spend time in Aram and travel from there eventually to Egypt. He wandered geographically, but he didn't wander morally. He wasn't lost. Instead, it's his uncle Laban, the Aramean, who wanders morally. By seeking to disgrace, to distract his nephew Jacob from his God given destiny. For many Jews through the centuries, Laban thus became the classic example of a close family member who seeks to undermine or distract an Israelite from obeying God. As a result, Jacob, the ancestor of all Israel, doesn't have to bear the slur of being called the wandering foreigner. This tradition turns my father was a wandering Aramean effectively into two related but contrasting Arameans. Jacob who wanders geographically and Laban who sins deeply as he tries to undermine Israel from within. At Passover then, every child of Jacob is reminded not to wander like Laban, above all, not to cause others to wander. And the moral of the reference to Aram is shifted from reminding Israel of its humble human origins to reminding Israel to resist temptation, even from a trusted relative. A few rabbinic commentators suggest that the wandering Aramean in Deuteronomy was not only meant to refer to father Jacob, but was beyond him meant to refer to father Abraham and not at all to Laban. I think this is correct. Deuteronomy never mentions Jacob, except in the repeated phrase, your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I think Deuteronomy never thinks of father Jacob without thinking of father Abraham and father Isaac. Of course, Abraham in Genesis also comes via Aram. It is in Aram that God calls Abram to begin his wanderings. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. This matters because historically and at Emmaus, most Christians are ethnically not Jews or Samaritans. We don't claim to be descended from Israel's ancestor Jacob but in Christ we do claim to be spiritually descended from Abraham. Have you noticed how much time the New Testament spends arguing, sometimes quite fiercely, that although Jews and Samaritans may in some unique sense claim to be descended from Jacob and therefore from his grandfather Abraham, Christians of whatever ethnic origin are in an even deeper sense, descended from Abraham through Jesus. Apparently it's important to the New Testament that when we become embodied by faith in Jesus, Abraham becomes our spiritual ancestor. So what is an ancestor? I guess ancestors are those dead people who nevertheless determine our identity, especially at the level of family. Who were your ancestors? Do you think about that at all? It's quite likely that you do. There are whole industries out there willing to sell you information about your ancestors, either from archives, or nowadays from linking DNA profiles to particular places of origin. Such industries make money, I suppose because most North Americans are descended culturally and genetically from people who are not from here. Mainstream Canadian society is a settler society and a youth-oriented society. We acknowledge only a selective and comparatively weak inheritance from our ancestors. Fondly, but distantly and critically remembered. If I'm right that it is somehow biblically quite important for Christians, for the Jews are not, to find a healthy and appropriate relationship with Abraham in Christ, then it's also quite difficult for several reasons for Christians today to find that healthy relationship with Abraham as spiritual ancestors. One of the most dangerous, historically harmful ways that Christians have taken over Abraham as an ancestor is when Christians have simply assumed that God has replaced old Israel with a new national or racial community to which God is assumed to have given some new promised land. Through the centuries, many Christian communities have assumed that having Abraham as our ancestor in Christ means denying that God's promises to Israel still stand. And combined with nationalist or racist delusions, that's historically often also meant claiming that God's promises to Israel now belong to some other Christian nation or empire. The pride-filled notion that we could just cross out the word Israel and write in our own particular tribe into God's promises has been one of the founding, enduring sins of what we call colonialism and racism. It's been used through the centuries to justify both antisemitism and forms of ethnic colonialism. Biblically, whatever it means for God to have promised Canaan to Abraham and his descendants, it has to mean something. It does not mean that other national identities are divinely entitled in the same way. And it doesn't mean that God no longer has a distinctive role for Israel, for historic Israel. God uses nations and kingdoms according to his will but God's covenant with Israel is unique. Israel's special relation to the land of God's promises cannot be transferred to endorse the manifest destiny of any other people. group. Secondly, though, whatever it means for God to have promised Canaan to Abraham and his descendants, and again, biblically, it has to mean something, it does not mean that a Jewish state in Palestine is divinely entitled to dispossess or abuse its Christian and Muslim Palestinian neighbors. We should be very wary of so-called Christian Zionism. I don't know which is worse, when the nations imitate Israel or when Israel imitates the nations. There's a third way that I've seen Christians really struggling to find a healthy and meaningful way to claim Abraham as our ancestor. Many Christians in the world today come from cultural backgrounds in which the ancestors and the homeland are very powerful sources of continuing identity, or they come from cultural backgrounds in which Christians have been forced to disown their connection with ancestral identity or ancestral homeland. For a Christian nurtured in a family and culture in which the ancestors are strongly felt to be a living and defining force, it can be deeply painful and perplexing to figure out how to bring ancestral identity into relationship with Jesus. For Christians like me, from backgrounds with rather weak ancestral ties, this can be hard to understand, but I've met indigenous Christians, Asian Christians, African Christians, for whom the problem of how to connect a living ancestral identity to an emerging Christian identity is a central problem for biblical faith. I think we're all also aware of the pain which many indigenous Christians and non-Christians feel from the ways that their ancestral identities have been surgically removed by supposedly Christian education. Many Christians around the world really feel the need for a more positive relation between their ancestral identities and Jesus' new family. I'm I'm not sure that I'm the one to have the pastoral and missionary wisdom to help Christians or would-be Christians who desire to be incorporated into Jesus' inheritance but who feel unable to abandon their pre-Christian ancestors. At least I can acknowledge that the problem is a real one, even though it's not a problem I personally feel strong. Let me point out though, that when Paul, the Jew, speaks to his Corinthian, non-Jewish converts about our ancestors in the Bible, Paul does not ask his Gentile converts to renounce their family and ethnic backgrounds and ancestors, though Paul does expect them to renounce idols. The New Testament church fiercely debated and then rejected the idea that non-Jews coming to Christ should become incorporated bodily into Israel, should become Jews and abandon their birth families. Instead, non-Jews are baptized into Jesus without erasing their prior identity. Perhaps that should mean embracing and valuing a duality of ancestry. Scripture promises salvation to those who believe in their hearts and confess Jesus in word and deed. Yet to the extent that my ancestors, even those of my ancestors who were not themselves Christian, are a part of who I am now. Perhaps I can still meaningfully offer their memory to my savior Christ. Indeed, I suspect that all of us, regardless of our cultural ancestral background, regardless of whether our forebears were professedly Christian or not, must face some of the family baggage that we have been passing through the generations and dragging around all our lives. Our whole society is becoming keenly aware of the ambiguity of every cultural and familial heritage. Humans are sinners and families of humans are not only powerful communities of nurture and support, they're also traditions of damage, brokenness. The patriarchs and matriarchs of Israel in Genesis and Exodus may be models of faith in God's promises, but they are not presented to us in the Bible as particularly wholesome people. They did the most shocking things to one another. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel, not to mention Jesus' royal ancestor, David, are presented in the Bible as models of trusting God and God's promises But we need to be very clear that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David are absolutely not presented in the Bible as models of healthy parenting. They are precisely models of how God can use dysfunctional sinners for glory, if only we will trust his promises. Like our spiritual ancestors in Israel, Christians are forgiven sinners and in us the wounds and tears of generations are present. Not least of all, in order to be given to Jesus, but they could still weigh us down. I think one of the uses of the spiritual exercise of saying to God, whether I'm an Israelite or a Gentile believer, my ancestor was a wandering refugee, is that we can give our whole past, even the parts we don't know about to God who was there where the wanderers wandered. And we can experience some level of historic healing across generations. Whoever your father was, there should be a freedom for you and for him when you say before God, my father was a wandering alien. But you, O God, have brought me here and put the first fruits of your promises in my hands. And as a human father, I pray for my children that they will be freed to give my wandering, mortal parenting to God in that way. This brings me to, I promise, my last set of observations from Deuteronomy 26. You will recall that I said that one of the striking things here is the individuality of the self-confession which God commands. Deuteronomy 26, one to 11, imagines that each year around the festival of Shavuot or what we would call Pentecost every individual Israelite with crops from the land of promise would bring a basketful into God's presence and confess my father was an Aramean wanderer. We're sometimes tempted to suppose that the key difference between Abraham's fatherhood in Israel and Abraham's fatherhood in the church is that Abraham is biologically the ancestor of the Jews and Samaritans, while Abraham is spiritually by faith, the ancestor as well of those Jews and non-Jews who claim God's promises in Jesus. But the Israelite who stands before God and declares, my father was a wandering alien, could not possibly know that he was, in our sense, biologically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That declaration was always a conscious act and declaration of faith. When I read Jesus' harsh exchange in John 8 with the Jews who had at least begun seriously to place their faith in him, The issue is not whether Abraham is their father by biology or by faith. The issue is perhaps whether Abraham is their father by faith in God or by faith in Abraham. The faith that Jesus, Jewish believers and John have to give up is a faith in their entitlement to Abraham, an entitlement which by definition could not be extended to non-Jewish believers. Instead, John's gospel calls Jewish and non-Jewish believers to the same faith, which leads through Abraham towards Jesus. In the ancient world, biological paternity was something that just couldn't be proven. If you think about it in antiquity, it was possible to know that a particular child was born of a particular mother. And a woman might know who the biological father of her child was, but public covenantal paternity always rested on faith and was challenged by suspicion. This fact, by the way, always led to a certain anxiety in ancient patriarchal cultures and fueled the repression of women. In an untrusting society, aggressive male domination and control of women seemed the only way to ensure paternity. In an important sense, in Mediterranean antiquity, all paternity was by adoption. Among non-Jews, a child became a member of a family by being formally accepted by the head of the family. Many babies were exposed left to die or to be picked up as slaves. In Jewish communities, a baby born to a Jewish mother is a Jew. But unless the mother is legitimately married, the child has an impaired identity. I guess this is why in John eight, Jesus challenging sonship in relation to God and to Abraham caused even Jews who were believing in him to feel accused of illegitimacy and to accuse Jesus back of illegitimacy or of being a Samaritan half-breed. In Jesus' own life, the claim of being a child of Abraham and Sarah was a faith claim that could always be contested. Paul also, and this is my last point, writes in four or five places about sonship or adoption. In Paul's vocabulary, they're the same word. And they understand sonship as a father's ritual action more than merely as biological kinship. In Romans nine, Paul says this about his fellow Jews. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption. That is the adoption as son, the glory the covenants, the giving of the Torah, the worship and the promises, to them belong the ancestors and from them according to the flesh is the anointed who is God over all, blessed forever. Paul uses exactly the same inescapably gendered word, adoption as son in Romans eight and in Galatians and again in Ephesians to describe our incorporation into Jesus' identity as God's son and as Abraham's inheritance. He predestined us for adoption as son to himself, as through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, Ephesians 1. When Paul writes in Romans 9, you've received spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. Paul is not only saying that God has adopted each of us individually as daughters and sons into Jesus' family, Abraham's family. though so surely that would be enough. But Paul is also saying that by the Holy Spirit, each of us, daughter or son, is adopted and recognized as incorporated into the living body of his, his unique son, Jesus men and women alike, we come before God in Jesus' body and Jesus' relationship with the eternal father. So that at Pentecost, we can not only say humanly with Jesus, my father was a wandering Aramean, we can also and ultimately cry out in the authority of Jesus' own spirit, uniting our own voices in Jesus' own voice, Abba, Father, thank you for receiving Jesus and me as your one beloved child. Will you pray with me? Come Holy Spirit and do this thing in us that makes us one with Jesus in his relationship with you um, and transform us beyond um, beyond just being your adopted daughters and sons. Transform us to being Jesus' body and blood, his flesh and his spirit. So that when you see each one of us, Lord, you see your son, Jesus. And when you hear us saying, my father was a wandering error. You also, by your spirit, hear us and free us to say, Abba, Father, thank you for recognizing us and knowing us as your child. In Jesus' name, amen.